Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast in which social scientists, philosophers, researchers and theorists discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the International Politics Building at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. We hope you enjoy the program. An android doesn't care what happens to another android. That's one of the indications we look for. Then, Miss Luft said, you must be an android. This conversation between the bounty hunter Rick Deckard and the android Luba Luft demonstrates one of the key questions asked by Philip K. Dick in his 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The book and its 1982 film adaptation as Blade Runner bring the question of what it is to be human to the forefront as we follow Deckard on his hunt for rogue androids that have escaped from Mars. I'm your host, Alex Hoseason, ignoring your lens flare. Oh, I'm Dovan Powell. Um, my pen field is permanently set to 888. I'm Carolyn Colt Orphan and thoroughly posthuman. Uh, I'm Matthew Campbell and I am three laws safe. Okay, great. Well, um, I think. Obviously, I mean, this is the first time actually we've done a book and a film. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to separate the two in some ways, but in, in, in other ways, they're, they're quite obviously distinct things. But at the same time, we couldn't justify an episode on each, so, you know, whatever. And, and the whole thing centres around whether, or one of the, one of the key questions of this is, is whether Deckard um, is, is a replicant or is an android. And the book seems to, in some ways, pay much less attention to this question. Dove, do you think? Do you think the? I mean, we'll call it the Android question uh, for now. Do you think that matters in 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 these things, kind of more broadly considering? Um, I think there are two conclusions in both the book and the film. Both the book and the film conclude, I think, that it doesn't matter. Yet they both answer those questions quite emphatically. Uh, Deckard is a human in the book. Deckard is a an android in Ridley Scott's final definitive cut. Then, okay, we've got. A, Remember, there are several cuts of this. But by the end, he's, he seems to have made his mind up that he's definitely an android. But as he picks up his little unicorn origami piece, he just shrugs his shoulders and thinks, well... And it just carries on going exactly where he was. So it's a strange answer that both the book and the film offer, that it does matter and it doesn't matter. Um, I think the key difference isn't actually the answers to whether he is or isn't human. It's just the differing ways in which the film and the book approach that question. Because the book is actually utterly unconcerned with the distinction in terms of flesh and blood versus metal and gears. The way the question is posited in the book is the idea that, okay, you are a flesh and blood human, but the way you are acting suggests that this distinction is no longer important, and that is the problem. Whereas the film's big reveal using the origami unicorn is, oh, wow, you're a robot, and that itself is significant. Whereas it's his own behaviour in the book that matters. Mm, yeah, I would agree. I think the book is quite focused on upsetting binaries in general. This is one sort of android human living, non-living, but it's not so much the end point of, like, is it either or, but just the process of upsetting that rigid distinction yeah, I think, I mean, one of the interesting kind of things that, that seems to run through it is I, I became convinced when I was reading the book, and I haven't read the book in a long time. I watch the film quite regularly um, because I like it, Carolyn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but the book I haven't read in about 10 years. It, it seems to me that the, the focus, at least in the book, wasn't about how they lived. It was about how they died, which we haven't planned this in advance, so we haven't got any way to follow up on that. Well, that's the, the irony at the heart of 
the whole notion of a, of a human, how a human is set up in, in this world, that they have these goals that they should have. It's kind of predefined that to be happy, they have to have this animal. To be happy, they have to key in the right thing in the, um, in the pen field. That if they live their life in a particular way, they're doing it right. But the irony is, just as an android, just as everything else, they're going to die. It doesn't really... It, it's not what they achieve as much. It's more the way they conduct their lives. Yeah, I think I think it, they both become quite instrumental in that setup. I mean, there's very, to use a kind of abstract notion, I mean, there's very little kind of uh, species being, there's very little kind of essence of what it is to live that's in the book. Yeah, death, I don't know. De- death is more obvious in the film. In the film, it's it's the death of the android at the end that gives us all a big kind of finale and, and, and the big dramatic moment. In the book, it's, it is always there because he is talking about retiring people all the time. He has to contemplate whether it's right to retire people. Um, and I think the one thing that he doesn't do is contemplate his own retirement until right at the end when he starts to question whether he can keep on going as a Blade Runner, as a defined thing. I find it funny that in the film, which, which I watched earlier, is he's re- that's one major difference to the to the book is actually at the beginning of the film he is retired yeah. which is of course the term that's sort of constantly being used for the for the uh ending as it were of the, of, of the androids and I, I, I didn't notice that irony before yeah no I, I just want to as a more general note I think looking at uh the way of dying and the treatment of death is actually quite an key to understanding different notions of human and living because sort of like in the post-human literature it's always referred to that this fear of death that's the ultimate human concern that we grow up with the consciousness and with the fear of a certain way of dying that makes us fundamentally human whereas you can't or like animals don't do that um, or whereas self-emulation is just normal in, in different species but the human is distinct by its fear of death and the way it dies and how we deal with that. So I think looking at retirement and dying and how sort of dead bodies are being treated in the book is actually quite revealing with regards to what the author seems to be or seems to think is human or not. Yeah, I think I think the culmination of the film with Roy Batty's kind of famous monologue that I'm going to resist the urge to recite uh, is is quite clearly the point at which. The film is actually more heavy-handed in this sense. I mean, it's quite obviously the point at which, oh, this guy is basically human uh, in in some sense. You know, he's got some, I mean, much like Brave New World, actually, he's got some poetic ability. Uh, you know, there, there's an obvious aesthetic sense to which he's drawing attention. Although there's that kind of oddly robotic statement at the end then, time to die, where he just kind of keels over. Yeah, that's straight. That's a, it's a remark that Deckard makes in the book several times that the replicants are quite happy to die or when they realise that it's their time they go quite passive um, both Lubeluft and Rosen when he threatens to kill the Rosen she just says oh, I'll just make sure that I don't I'm, it isn't painful but so does the bounty hunter Deckard meets so in the middle so unhuman like yes so and he becomes very concerned that he may be a replicant, and he's terrified that he might be one, and he's convinced that because he owns a squirrel, he owns a pet squirrel, that this can't make him a replicant. But 
the point at which Decker and him discuss this, he actually comes to terms with this and says, look, okay, you need to do the test on me, and if I'm a replicant, you need to kill me. So if the androids trying to be human have the same reaction to death as the human Terrapides and android, we again lose that distinction. Yeah, yeah, and I would agree, but it also highlights that the fear of death, how we perceive it, is a very Western phenomenon, and that's also a trained thing to to approach death in this way, whereas in different cultures, you know, that is approached quite differently, and death may be not such a dooming, sort of end-of-world thing anyway, so... I, again, it just throws up the question, is that just something where we're thought to, to act in a certain way, or can we, as androids do, maybe be trained to not fear that moment and just deal with it in a maybe more rational <laughs> Well, I think, I think it ties into, ties into the religion in the book, right, which it isn't focused on much in the, uh, in the film, where the, fo- the focus is definitely on some kind of cyclical return, uh, in 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 the way these things in the way these things come about. Anyone want to take on Mercerism? Take on Mercerism. <laughs> Mercerism is a bit it's yeah. a bit weird. So yeah, there's throughout, weird. throughout the novel, there's this religious figure which humans can grab onto a machine and empathise with and experience what he supposedly experiences. The figure's called Mercer, and he's this not lazily but deliberately, obviously amal- made amalgam of other religious figures. He's, an, he's a mountain ascending Moses and he's a take injuries for you Jesus. And, and a bit of Sisyphus as well. And a bit of Sisyphus and all these other things. He's constantly climbing a mountain being pelted yeah. by rocks. And one of the principal things the androids are trying to do throughout the novel is prove, because they're right, that Mercer isn't real. and He's actually an actor on a soundstage. And what the androids don't get is after they've proved he's not real, they think that should just settle the settle the issue that nobody can be interested in mercerism, this world's religion, because it isn't true. But of course, the wider point Philip K. Dick's trying to make is that mercerism provides a different purpose for humans. Now, it doesn't, as far as we can tell, provide the idea of life after death, which would potentially be one way of escaping the fear of death, but it does provide some sort of empathic value to humanity. And what other people think of that as a... Well, I think it would... I think it provides an idea of life through death. I, I, I think, I mean, it's very explicitly stated that the people using the box, for lack of a better word, are connected to everybody else. You know, they share the same injuries, they share the same sensations, and all of these things. And so it's this kind of weird com- combination of the fact that, I mean, it's both messianic in the fact that it's focused on this incredible, you know, this singular person. Uh, who, who the androids are desperate to prove is fake, but it's also cyclical. And the the point that's made at the end of the book with regard to that is the kind of overcoming of mercerism is a kind of necessary part of it for it to become genuine. Because Deckard and his wife, who spend the vast majority of the book seemingly hating each other, don't need that anymore. They move beyond that in the sense that they become empathic, almost in inverted commas, by design, rather than a kind of necessary part of their social routine. It's, it's, it, it becomes deinstitutionalized. Yeah, empathy with the mood organ. I, I don't know, I have a slightly different view on it in that 
it's kind of commodified. Empathy is something that's commodified in this world that you just buy it or you type it in and you get it. Only when Deathguard shares empathy with his wife for this goat that dies, this real goat that's pushed off the off the roof of the building at the end, that's when they really make a connection. And it's only after that bit where they share genuine empathy with each other and or compassion for this goat and they they share a moment. That's when, for the first time, uh, I think they kiss in the book, and not just kiss, kiss tenderly as well. Um, I think that's that's quite telling, um, and it feeds into this broader notion of commodifying or almost it's split between commodifying and defining what it is to be a human. So you should feel empathy. Oh, do this, and you'll feel empathy. In the same way, he's a bounty hunter, right? So his goals, his objectives, what he should be done, is defined by something else. He's kind of if you want othered by everything, that his entire life is something that's defined for him that he needs to, um, he needs to achieve. He needs to buy a, a real animal, and the whole novel is about going beyond that and realizing that it's about his own agency, his own feelings. Yeah, I think I mean it's important in the throughout the book that any human relation he has is always something is a shared projection, mm. whether it's to his targets or his animal or or whatever else, Karen. Yeah, um, going back to Devon's point of the sort of commodification aspect, I think also like Mercerism does a few things in the book which are not necessarily coherent with each other. But contextualizing it sort of when the book was written in a sort of anti establishment uh, flower power movement. I often wondered how like that move machine sort of represents maybe television and media and how we sort of like plug in to feel something. Um, how what is it like his critique of sort of this this digital sensation machine called television? Um, and then on the other hand, I also think sort of by showing that religion can be something fairly new as it actually as a critique of sort of like old very set re religious establishments um, again within sort of the more of the um, yeah maybe 68 70s movements um, particularly with sort of hinting at sort of Buddhism and the collective and all these things I think it does not just only one thing Mercerism it has several critiques in in it um, and just on a very basic uh, level, I think, highlights the importance for him for spirituality in whichever shape or form. Um. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about about Mercerism, but also, also, I mean, the mood organ, it seems to have this kind of, every, everything seems to, all, all the kind of implements of their life seems to be there to permit them to feel stuff. I mean, I, I when, when I heard the name mood organ, um, I initially thought that it would be an instrument, hmm. and 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 then I thought, well, as someone who plays guitar, you know, I'll you know I'll play my mood guitar and it'll make me happy. Well, actually, I just play my guitar and it makes me happy. It doesn't need to be a mood guitar. So you've got this kind of weird thing where there's quite a lot of artificial stimulation, for want of a better word, that is seems to have been there for so long, um, and seems to have become part of people's lives. But not because it needs to be anymore. It's just because people have forgotten how to be any other way. The, that suggestion would seem... So one of the tensions of the book is the idea that are the emotions they're getting from the mood organ real? 
So if I take a hormone, if I take some dopamine and it makes me happy, has it actually made me happy? Now, as a researcher in global health, the, the, the neurological, pharma, pharmacological answer is yes. But I don't think that's going to satisfy the philosophers in the room. I, I think they're going to have a different conception of what it would mean to feel an emotion to me. I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting thing to follow up on. I mean, we've, we've talked about this experiment before where there was a survey done about this machine that you could plug yourself, a hypothetical machine you could plug yourself into, go away forever, never know you were plugged in, mm. and you could be, in some respects, infinitely happy. And the majority of people said no. They wouldn't plug in. They wouldn't plug into that machine. I mean, Matt, Matt's, Matt, Matt... I totally uh, would. Matt, Matt, Matt would. He's, 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 made, he's made the... Uh, the the, the, the <laughs> argument made. you can make against it is it's a selfish act, because if your existence as a human is that you yeah. can do more good for other humans... But also that suffering is part of... Is it? Well, yeah, in a, in a humanist sense, the suffering yeah. is part of being human, I suppose. But it's yeah. the walking up the hill constantly being pelted by rocks, right? I, th I think it is. I, I think suffering is part of... I don't know, guys. I'd take the machine. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it even... Android. <laughs> 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 Apparently I'm an android. <laughs> Big news to me. <laughs> Dreaming of unicorns tonight. Yeah. <laughs> in the... In the book, I think the best character is my favorite character is definitely um, Isidore, the chicken head or the simple head, simpleton, who again has his kind of life, what he can do. That's been defined by other people for him. That's why he has to constantly remind people, "Oh, I have a job," as if, "Oh, you're not supposed to have a job because you're a bit yeah, stupid." Definitely. Yeah. Um, and he keeps reminding people, but he's the one who has, who is most. I'm not going to use the word human, but he's the one who's the most oh, empathetic yeah. and he, the most... He's certainly the closest to being genuine. Happy. He's the one who shows genuine sort of emotion and compassion and these kind of what are, what seem to Dick as um, heroic qualities. Yeah. Even though he's he shouldn't be the hero. But I think it's important to note one of the ways in which his empathy is shown to be the greatest in the... Early on in the novel, Isidore works for a animal repair company. Mm. It's a hospital that repairs fake animals, but so that no one finds out, if you're, so your neighbours don't find out you've got a fake robot animal, all of their stuff looks real, and Isidore drives the ambulance. And what happens is someone who owns a real cat mistakes the repair company for an animal hospital and gives Isidore the cat. And it becomes apparent that either through deep empathy or uh, his own mental... I don't want to use the word deficiencies. But his own mental difficulties... Isidore really doesn't quite get the distinction between the real cat and the robot cat. Now, if we're to view that Isidore has heroic qualities, and he kind of does, then does the fact that he honestly doesn't care about the distinction? Or doesn't make a distinction. Yeah. He, he's, in, in, for some reason, incapable of making a distinction and defining something as human or not human. And so he just reacts to people. And his... He's the saddest character as well because he's the one who suffers the most for the most insignificant thing. One, well, it's it's the torture of a spider, and yeah, he really definitely. suffers for it. Mm. And again, this character comes out. He's the the hero, if you want, of the whole thing because he's completely honest with his own emotions throughout. I think the really there's a really interesting kind of inversion that happens in the book where. Sorry, it's worth noting that he also takes in androids. Yeah. Well, I was I was just about to say this that. I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting inversion whereby, I mean, according to the narrative structure of the book, we're focused on Deckard, right? And following him around and kind of, in some sense, wanting, to, wanting him to be the hero and all of that kind of thing. I mean, Deckard's a, 
Deckard isn't Harrison Ford, right? I mean, you know, it, you know, he's, he's a bit of a dick, right? Like he goes through the film and does some pretty nasty things. But actually, we're we're so focused, and the big problem in Deckard's kind of complete existential collapse over his ability to feel for an android, and 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 this huge focus on it, and I found myself constantly pointing out well, to myself, or, you know, shouting at the walls in my room while I was reading the book, that actually Isidore's been caring for androids for half the book and no one's made a big deal out of it. Yeah. Because he doesn't need to make a big deal out of it. He doesn't associate any instrumental value to feeling compassion. It also raises the question of... So the androids are being retired because they're not allowed back on Earth, but apparently they could go off and live in that empty building with Isidore and nobody would notice... So he does raise the what's the problem question here. Oh, definitely, yeah. And they run their own police station. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, no, I think like Isidore is like, for me, always was the character, always one of the main characters, but also the character that was supposed to present sort of pure humanity, that without all the bad influences, that's what you're supposed to be like. Oh, that's what we ought to, like, should be like. Um, if it wasn't for all the... Technological influences that make us now uh, what we are, but then um, the fact that he can't distinguish between the living and the mechanical cat is interesting. Then in itself, if he is supposed to be the human, goes back to the question of real and not real. Because does it matter that he feels real about this cat, even though it's mechanical? So it does actually highlight. Well, it doesn't matter. Um, physiologically or biologically or chemically or sort of um, yeah whether it's real or not but how he feels about it and that is quite real you could argue yeah. just to go back to Matt's point of real versus not real I don't know if there's any benefit of looking at othering and the way everybody's othered almost except for Isidore who doesn't who doesn't draw these distinctions he doesn't draw these categories and these and therefore these expectations of how different categories of beings will operate and will act he just deals with agency alone because he turns against the androids in the end because they're cruel not because yeah. he realizes that they're dangerous or anything because they haven't shown themselves to be dangerous to him whereas Deckard struggles with this idea that he has this notion of himself or what he should be throughout until he right at the end where he realizes no I can love a toad a fake toad. Does Deckard have a choice to feel these things? So it's made very apparent that Rachel Rosen is an android built so that he will be attracted to it. So he's being manipulated by various forces throughout the story. It's not necessarily a world... He can't control a huge portion of his world. And this would apply to all of us. We, we can talk about empathy and emotion and choice, but actually our, our scope for what we can do is very narrowly limited by the world we live in. And I think that's critically true of Deckard, is that he doesn't actually have a great deal of free choice in the actions he does. It's especially given that given once he's retired one android, the others will come for him. So now he's got to kill them. Yeah, I think that's most clear in, in the case with the animals, right? I mean, the animals, despite the fact that they're portrayed as the chance for people to have genuine emotions, or the chance for them to empathise in some way with something, becomes a question of social status. You've got that conversation between him and his neighbour, oh, don't worry, I won't tell anyone. Um, despite the fact that in all, all, the, all the descriptions of the animals, you know, it talks about their illness circuits. 
and the various methods by which they can become more real, as it were. And I, th I think that's the major difference in, in some regards between the book and the film is the animals, right? Because you have... The film is quite happy with the city it's portraying, right? It's an amazing vision of what a city like that might look like. But, I mean, it, it's, it's, it doesn't problematize that. Whereas I think the entire ecology that's behind the book is is actually quite a major point that it's it's trying to make. Yeah, the so the androids exist because humans need to colonize other planets. And we need to colonize other planets because humans have destroyed the ecosystem, which is also the reason that nobody has any real animals anymore and we have to have why the novel gets its title, Deckard used to own an electric sheep. Uh, a sheep that died it ate some barbed wire and um <laughs> it died. And De Deckard, one of the points he makes is that, ah, yes, androids, we know they're androids because they can't care for animals. It's like, well, hang on, Deckard, you owned two animals. One was an electric sheep, and you failed to look after that. And the other was a goat, and it was real, you and it you failed to look after that as well. He has this wonderful line about his electric sheep. His electric sheep, which he had to tend, had to care about as if it lived. The tyranny of an object, he thought. It doesn't know I exist. Like the androids, it has no ability to appreciate the existence of another. Now, the implication would seem to be that we destroyed the ecosystem, so we have to have fake animals. But if you're going to live in such a destroyed world, you kind of have to live with the consequence of destroyed humans as well. So, your sheep became a robot, and so did you. Dramatic pause. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got to say, it's actually one of the, I mean, one of the worst descriptions in the book, is, is, is the killing of the goat. Yeah. Because it's this quite slow meditative book and then all of a sudden Rosen comes out of nowhere sweeps the goat off a roof and then runs away again <laughs> it's kind of bizarrely comic but she does that because she knows it'll hurt him yeah which yeah. suggests empathy <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. yeah but um i mean it's quite interesting in the way that uh the, the author approaches the human non-human distinction but only ever by or mostly by anthropomorphizing the androids so it's never you know like it's hardly ever yeah Deckard only questions him being human by his lack of empathy towards an android but that means that still the human is the center the measurement of all things i.e empathy and oh no but look androids can be human too because they may you know, care or not care, or da, 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 da. but that's sort of like bringing the androids into the realm of the human. So it's not really a blending or like saying, oh, what is human, what is not human. It's just like, look, they can be like us. They can do similar things. Um, I would still question actually whether he is successful in upsetting that boundary or just moving it a bit further away. I think his wife does at the end. Because even when they get the goat about halfway through, he only sees it in what he can get out of it. One mm. of the first things he says, oh, we can make, we can get milk and cheese. It'll be a great state symbol and we'll get something else out of it. How good is that? But at the end, his wife with a toad, even if it's an artificial toad, realize, uh, phones up the company and asks, well, what do I feed it? Do I feed it flies? Should I get a little pond? Sort of. I think she moves a bit away from what can this animal or fake animal do to me? Mm -hmm. More towards 
a more environmental kind of caring for um, for the animal on its on, on the animal's terms. Yeah, I think I mean there's this. Uh, I, I I think what you're talking about, Caroline, in some ways is his is the the way he frames the question is slightly wrong. If if those are the issues he wants to discuss, right? Because he discusses all these issues through the lens of the question, can we tell the difference? Mm. Right, which is a instrumental framing of of that question. I mean, none of these characters are um, reclining in chairs, drinking red wine and thinking about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, you know, they're not conceptualising it. They've got quantified tests which measure human. Yeah. And they argue about which tests work better than others, but they're all measuring a specific thing. I mean, the classic question in political theory, I mean, even the most traditional forms of political theory would be, does this apply to people in comas? Does this apply mm. to psychopaths, schizophrenics, mm. yeah. pathological, yeah. You, know, you know, or, you know, people there's with that, pathologies? To, to get slightly off-piste, there's the weird back and forth in the film I Robot, which is a moderate adaptation where... The policeman turns to the robot and says, ah, but a robot cannot paint a beautiful picture and can't compose a sympathy, symphony. And the robot's response is, can you? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So these standards we apply to humans, yeah, sure, the robots fail them, but they're terrible standards. Yeah, no, I, I, I think this is a very um, fundamental problem in the book because if I was, I don't know, a mom to a child that has was lacking certain abilities or something, I'd be, like, really upset about such rigid, out-of-nowhere standards about what is human and what is not human, or like a worthy human being. That's the, well, brought up at some point that the bounty hunters discussed they had to use the Voigt-Kampf test because the old one no longer works because it's implied as people on the autistic spectrum yeah. fail the test. Yeah, yeah. But that, okay, that's an in-character recognition, but it doesn't solve the problem of, well... The idea that you can fail this test and well, be a human. There's, there's an infinite number of possible mm. groups yeah. that could could fail that test, yeah. right? And and I think this is the the constant question about you could have killed someone who wasn't an android. I mean, in in the book, it takes quite advanced technology to test whether you have to bring back the lumps of them so you can do a bone marrow test on them. Yeah, no, but I think it it also should point us into the question that we sort of discussed. This um, is why there are so many German references. What is it about valuing certain forms of life or different races over others? Um, maybe that is also pointed towards, well, we've seen in history before that we have these tests apparently by measuring the size of your head or by you know your nationality that we then start to make qualitative judgments about the human you are, the, the, the non-human you are, or the you know uber-human you're not. Um, which you know would would go back to maybe kind of highlight why we have so many German historical implications there. Yeah, yeah, agree. Well, it, it keeps coming back to this idea that there is kind of Descartes takes this empiricist view of what a human is and thinks you can measure it. And as you were saying, there are tests to, because everybody who's even even the humans are subhuman in a sense because they're not allowed on the colonies they fail the tests um, and yeah I think it's at the heart of it and yeah I was just about to point that out I mean there's not much gradation of they call them specials right yeah. I mean the, yeah. you, don't, you don't see much in, in terms of 
Whereas in Brave New World, there's quite a distinct categorization. Stratification mm. of humanity. Yeah. yeah, stratification. Uh, um, you know, in, in, in this one, there really isn't. I mean, it's just a kind of point blank, well, you don't really, yeah. you're not someone you're not valuable who enough. deserves. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like Blade Runner brought to you by Jeremy Bentham. We can, I mean, we can hopefully maybe find a link to this and throw it up on the website. But W were mentioning um, that when Philip K. was writing the novel, he was partially inspired by the writings of a concentration camp guard. Yeah, I've read that he was he was going through the diaries of, of one of these guards, and this one of these guards was writing in his diary that he started to feel empathy for one of uh, one of the victims in this camp, which inspired his apparently inspired the whole the, him to start questioning the same kind of thing. And yeah, you were talking about mm-hmm. the German references. We started to discuss it. It, was, it only struck me when you brought it up before. Yeah, no, but I think it so does make German sense names. because, like, obviously after sort of like. The Holocaust. Everyone was like, "How could this happen? How can humans do that to humans?" Mm. Right. So, sort of this precisely this lack of empathy is what makes prison guards in a concentration camp less human, in the way that they conceive of those they're guarding as less human as well, because by their standards, they're not proper also, human um, either. Yeah. Not only the lack of empathy, but to go along with that, is this more? Kind of definitional empiricists sort of have the Milgram experiments. Yeah, and, exactly. Well, um, this this is Elaine Scarry's point. She talks about in the body of pain. The the line that was used by concentration camp guards that I'd shoot you, but you're not worth the three penny for the bullet, and that this is not a line that's designed to upset the inmate. It's a line designed to dehumanize the guard. I, I, Do you I, want to get into Milgram because they're kind of controversial these days? Well, they are, they are. I, I I think a lot of this stuff. I, I worry about these things because I, I think if you're going to treat issues like that, then the book doesn't do a very good job of it. I don't, I don't, I don't think, think. No, I, I don't think he's inspired by this, mm. obviously. But I, he, although there, there, there are echoes. You were saying about Rosen being a, a common name before the war. Yeah, a, a Jewish name. A Jewish, yeah. name, yeah. a Jewish last name. So. And Rosen is the prototype android in this book. So and then also that Luba is called Luft. So it was like air, which is sort of essential to breathe and live. And, you know, I, obviously I don't think names like that just happen randomly. And, but I, um, I would agree with Alex, it's not a full proper commentary on that. It's just one of the many things that I think he's just trying to get the reader to think about and maybe read it in through, because everyone comes from a different perspective and will read it through a different yeah. lenses anyway. So I, like me as a German, I would, of course, then start thinking about, oh, so... What if Earth is a big concentration camp and Mars is that, you know, the the, the new colonised better world? Um, Which, of course, we never see. Yeah. I mean, we see the adverts for it. <laughs> but, well, yeah, can, so, can, you know. Can there be military-grade androids to do basic work on these planets? I'd have thought the implication is that these are not very nice places to live. Well, I, I think that's the irony, right? I mean, you once you go, you can't come back. So, or no one does, or chooses to, yeah, yeah. So, apart from the androids, androids. so why do they want to come back? Because they're told they're slave labor on that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, whereas they're back on earth, they are closer to humans then because all the humans are slave labor as well, or because, um, because they can blend in easier with humans. This, I assume that, yeah, a lot of this kind of. Is assumed by your own mind almost you don't it isn't it isn't explicit so my 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 image was that it was far more stratified and far more divided on mars than on earth 
and that's why they come back to Earth because they can. They're still hoping Earth hmm. more so than on Earth on on Mars for these androids. Hmm. I thought this was a prequel to Brave New World. <laughs> kind of weird, you know. <laughs> you, what what about the vision of the future then? In this, I mean, I, I don't think there's any specific profound comment he's trying to make, but there's definitely things that he's addressing, like scarcity and, and and things like that. I mean, I mean, obviously, the aesthetic of the film is extremely famous. The the, the aesthetic of the film has become so famous that it almost looks cliche, right? <laughs> so if, if if you were someone now watching Blade Runner for the first time. And you didn't know what all the things had been made in. It's like, wow, this rips off Fifth Element and Doctor Who and all these other things. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like yeah, that's because I've never watched it before until yeah, just very recently, and it's very it feels very saturated, like too much actually to 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 take in. It's like a theatre stage that's packed with everything sci-fi you could think of. Well, this I mean, you could argue that's Ridley Scott's. It's quite of... different to Alien, though. When you think of Alien, yes. you think of the really white, yeah. clean, yeah. perfect, yeah, very sterile. Yeah. Well, I know, I know that the. I mean, I just like to point out that it's it's. It looks like the origin of the cliche, unless you live near Patarba. In Wales, <laughs> well, there's jets of flame going up in the air. There's <laughs> the fact. Well, there's an extent to which I mean, is it Los Angeles? Or hell. It's meant to be working. In the film, there's a clear. If, you, if, if you're looking at sort of a sprawled industrial area where the traditional um, industries, such as, I don't know, say, automobile, automobile manufacture, have died, where the area is very polluted, yeah, you definitely. can draw a very clean line of a science fiction world as our own world extrapolated. Hmm. Okay, we don't have the flying cars or the androids, but you can see post industrial America in the film very clearly. Oh, you can see Chicago, and you can see like all the big car manufacturing plants and everything else. Well, there was that. There was the joke of the curse of Blade Runner, because throughout the film there are all these billboards advertising yeah, yeah. Um, companies, and, yeah. and almost all the companies who had an advertising billboard got into financial difficulty oh, really? shortly after the film came out. <laughs> and it's become known as the curse of Blade Runner, and it's quite weird. And I'd say it's coincidental, but you could almost make an argument about these are symbols of American industry. Well, I, I know that the the brief that Ridley Scott gave, whoever the set designer was, and I really should know his name because I saw an interview with him the other day, um, the the brief he gave him was, the future is old. Uh, and I think that there's a very real sense in which it has a history. You know, I mean, it, it could be any of the metropolises, just, you know, the same with Neuromancer. You know, that it just carries on. Well, um... I, I mean, there's a lot more dry ice lying around in... I forgot the name of the author of Neuromancer. William Gibson, William Gibson was halfway through writing Neuromancer when he saw Blade Runner and thought, well, everyone's going to think I copied it, and so he stopped writing it. It, it does have this sort of... It's the fulcrum of science fiction. It's what we imagine it looks like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously hugely aesthetically important. I mean, it still looks great. The fashion's terrible. Right. Well, <laughs> well, I think it does like the way she's you dragged like, on like the kind of thing. Like the, <laughs> I mean, that's like I was thinking of Avatar actually when I saw her. I, I was thinking of doing my hair like Roy Batman. Well, there's <laughs> one, one of my friends made the very uh, angry observation that uh, it's Tyrell in the film. We know Rachel Tyrell is definitely an android because she does something with her hair which is functionally impossible <laughs> yeah. and my friend was like well that must be robot hair <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you also know they're androids in the film because their eyes glow every Do single an- every single android's eyes glow and Rosen's glow ah. Rachel 
Rachel's eyes glow as soon as she realises she's an android. Oh, really? Um, during the... I mean, it opens with that fantastic interview with... Um, not Polakoff, it's a different name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, his eyes glow in yeah. that, and then Bakhti's eyes always glow. All the androids, their eyes glow. I thought that was just in Matro. I think it's... Because eyes are a big thing in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's to the eye factory that he goes, the eye manufacturer that he goes. Well, it's at the centre yeah. of the boy camp yeah. test, right? Yeah. It's, it's always on the screen. Near the end, when he's playing about with um, Isidore, he picks up eyes and he plays with eyes. And This idea of recognising yourself and recognising others, how you recognise other people, mm. is uh, far more explicit in the, in the film than it is. In the... you, you can play with that aesthetic in a film. And this is, this is adaptational choice, which you have to do with the visual medium from a book. So, for, for example, in the book... It is revealed later on that one of the androids that Decker is hunting looks exactly like Rachel because they're from the same series. Mm. Now, you couldn't pull that trick in a film because you're either going to need two actresses who look exactly the same and so the audience are going to know straight away or they're going to look different, which is the decision that was eventually made. But no, I think the, the, the theme of the eye is quite um, important to highlight, I think, sort of Descartes self-centeredness that he doesn't have these exterior eyes looking at him hmm. or looking at himself from from sort of like if he were to take his eyes and look at yeah, yeah. him from somewhere else so I think that quite nicely highlights that he's all along so sort of self-absorbed as it were which is quite human actually to be very hmm. you to 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 analyze everything in reference to yourself Rather than actually looking from like a set of eyes <laughs> that are not your your own, so I think that's again a strong criticism in the book in general on probably human behavior as such. Well, I think, I think very like, characteristic of Deckard. Sorry, I, I I think eyes become a trope in themselves, right? I mean, Minority Report, mm, Hans Labyrinth. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. of these films that you you see this kind Minority of. Minority Report's another called Kadic. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But that, that horrible. I mean, in the film adaptation, that horrible scene where he's chasing his own eyes down the corridor. Yeah. Well, uh, Terrell in the film is killed having his mm. eyes pushed into his sockets. Oh, of course he is. There, there is an extent to which we can overanalyze films, of course, because many people accuse Ridley Scott of. There's a chess game going on between um, Sebastian and Tyrell in the film. And it bears a passing resemblance to a very famous chess game known as the Immortal Game. And for years, people suggested that uh, Ridley Scott had deliberately picked the Immortal Game as a reference to unliving things. And then several years later, Ridley Scott went, no, just a coincidence. Hmm. Oh, from, um, I don't know, there's something in that. Death of the author and all that, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I'm thinking um, uh, Bergman's uh, film, the, the Knight Who Comes Back from Crusade. And he plays chess with that. But yeah. the, the, the idea that... So we can apparently look at this film and say, well, this is a deliberate choice on behalf of the artist. Okay, and actually, yeah. it's not oh, a deliberate okay. choice. It's just coincidentally true. And we're imagining this is some brilliant artistic choice to make it this particular chess game. And really, Scott's like, no, it was complete coincidence that it happens to be the same two moves as a famous chess game. Oh, okay. Because I'm such a genius <laughs> thinking well, of those two moves. Yeah. <laughs> By coincidence. <laughs> But yeah. the act of playing chess, though, is... Oh, yeah. Well, play, playing chess with death is the obvious... Yeah. Uh, but rather mm. playing chess with the, the, the maker in this sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. Mm. Okay, cool. Well, we have to be finishing up there, I think. 
Uh, yes, apparently I'm going to be taken outside and retired. Because, uh, <laughs> I failed the empathy test today. So. <laughs> you can still plug into your machine. I'll empathize it. All right, cool. Thanks very yeah. much, and uh, we'll see you next time.